0: You're good at pulling those things together. So, Amy, off you go. Great. Thank you. And um, thank you for having me here. It's kind of exciting to be able to participate in Oxford events from so far away. Um, but I was pondering this morning, the jet lag will probably be just as bad Mind. mine. Um, I wanted to start quickly by acknowledging the um, traditional custodians of the land on which I am coming at you from today, which is the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people. Um, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and for us it's always pretty special to be working on topics like food and technology um, and supporting community in a place where people have been doing that for over 40,000 years, which seems like rather a long time. So it's fair to say um, that COVID-19 has affected our food system in all sorts of ways, and I think we've heard a bit about that today and we'll hear a lot more um, through the course of the session. Um, This is a national food survey. It was the first major review of the food system in the UK for 75 years. And it suggested that this has been the greatest stress test of our food system since the second world war. They went on from that to say the entire machinery of supply and distribution had to be recalibrated fast. But part one doesn't mention most of this machinery at all. Um, It doesn't talk about the machinery that underpins the system, or about how we might go about recalibrating it. So today I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And I'm going to use an example that hopefully some of you may have found in your shopping baskets at various points during lockdown and which Stanley's already mentioned today. um, And that is the egg. Now it's not that hard to buy an egg and I'm going to unapologetically own all of the puns that I come up with today. This one wasn't even intentional. Um, This is Harrods in 1920. Um, It's a stand containing eggs for All English Egg Week. And it shows that 100 years ago, we could go into a shop and we could buy an egg. They were mostly British, but we do see early glimpses of international imports. The fact that we need an All English Egg Week suggests that there are competitors on the market. Um, But by and large, it's something that's pretty recognisable to us today. Now, even during the Second World War and war rationing, it was still possible to buy eggs. It was just a bit harder. This is a photograph from the National Archives in 1939. And we can see um, some imported eggs from Canada called empire eggs. Um, But again, by and large, it was still possible to go to a a point of sale and purchase eggs. A Couple of differences here as international shipping had increased a little bit and we've got surprisingly better egg cartons. So fast forward to COVID-19, things have been a little bit fragile. Um, Some things have changed momentarily and this starts to give us glimpses into what's gone on um, in the food, some parts of the food system at least. Um, As Caroline and Sabine have already alluded to, we started baking more. We also started eating a lot more eggs for lunch. And so egg sales for retail customers rose unexpectedly 30% or more. And I wanna come back to this idea of the unexpected through this talk, because I think there's something really important to think about there. Something else that happened in the UK in particular was eggs on your supermarket shelves got smaller and they got whiter. Um, As eggs that were small and white were redirected from liquid egg, which would normally be used by global restaurant chains to home use. Um, A bit of an aside here for anybody who's not from the UK. Um, Since 1970 in the UK, people have Uh, largely considered brown eggs to be the healthier option which is why we tend to see it more in um, consumer retail. That's not universal and in some places of uh, some parts of the US for example you would see um, white eggs favoured for a similar reason. Something else that happened during lockdown is at one point we encountered an egg carton supply chain problem uh, which led to a whole series of questions about whether we ought to change Uh, regulation to permit the sale of loose eggs again, as we saw in Harrods in 1920. And this kind of of phenomenon leads uh, points to interlocking supply chains and interlocking systems um, such as the supply chain of pieces of cardboard on the one hand. They can change an entire supply of eggs right through to the expert systems of regulation, which also have a role to play in shaping how and when we get our food. So across the UK in particular, there were simultaneously egg shortages and egg oversupplies. So the answer to the pretty simple question, did we have an egg shortage, depends on when and where and who you were in the system. Now it's easy to look at all of that and to now look at where we're at and to think that overall not too much has changed. We can still go into the shop and we can still purchase an egg, much like we could in the 1920s. So despite all the promise of futuristic foods and technology and mod cons, buying the basics isn't particularly new. We do have better egg cartons. Um, We do have self-service stores. Um, Tesco started those in 1948, so they're not particularly new. We can also purchase eggs from home with a computer. Uh, we've been able to do this since 1984 when this new at home shopping was envisaged as a service for the disadvantaged and the elderly so that's not too new too it's pretty recognizable and all of this creates a bit of a dilemma we can look at our daily practice of doing something like buying eggs and we can think that not much has changed and it's much harder to crack open the system and find that since 1970 everything about the machinery of supply and distribution in our food system has changed. And you might even contend that that there has been a much larger set of changes at play underneath the surface compared to what has happened during COVID-19. So I wanted to take a little bit of a look at how an egg gets in your shopping basket. What's the system that we're talking about here? And if I asked you to draw that today for me, your understanding of how the egg went from the chicken to your shopping, I wonder what you'd draw. If we had more time, I would ask everybody to do it and hold it up to the camera and uh, we could talk about it. Um, for the meantime, here's how we might imagine it. We might imagine a process as something pretty linear. Um, it's a chain after all. And a pretty straightforward series of steps from the chicken into either industrial or retail use, um, where the industrial eggs would then travel into a series of production processes and then into our retail environment. The reality is here's how they actually work today. They are so complex, we need messy diagrams and a revival of clip art to try and explain and articulate how they work. And Indeed, software can manage some of these supply chain systems in such a way that people don't need to be able to understand or articulate the whole system. Uh, For example, if you were in or part of this supply chain, you wouldn't know who's two steps away from you in the supply chain because things are changing all the time. Um, Software is continuing to optimize the path from chicken to retailer Um, And that means choosing each time it makes a move, which which supplier or which intermediary might be best at that particular moment and time. Um, That means we've got real-time data coming into the system, applying computational processes and making decisions all the while. It's what we might call a cyber-physical system. And I really love this description of this system. Um, When pictures fail us, there are some words we can draw on too. The internet driven supply chain operates like a digital logistics nervous system. It provides multi-directional communication among firms, networks of firms and e-marketplaces so that entire networks of supply chain partners can immediately adjust inventories, orders and capacities. Now, to me, as someone who spent a bit of time in anthropology, this resembles more like a complex cooler ring than an industrial systematic supply chain or capitalist system of value exchange. And I think there's something interesting there for us to start thinking about. So where did it come from? One way to think about where this particular supply chain model has come from is to go back to Japan in the 1960s and the car industry. Um, Toyota, and this is one of their plants in 1959, the Motomachi plant, decided that it was time to reform their supply chain management. They thought to improve worker machine collaboration and they were keen to cut overheads and in-house storage. So the idea was you would have you would lower your costs if you were able to uh, access parts that you needed just in time. So just as you needed them and no further, uh, no earlier. Um, And this just-in-time manufacturing was all about only storing items as needed and having items mostly in flow. Now, this required a load of different things. It required the ability to predict, take in data and understand what you would need when uh, and next, Um, series of communication pathways. There were certain redundancies that were required and also new exchange processes and pathways. And again, as an anthropologist, these are things I can get my teeth into. So how do we go from Toyota to UK supermarkets? Well, that's the one really easy step. In the 1980s, Tesco announced that they wanted to become the Toyota of the grocery world. Um, And so they adopted a lot of the models that had been uh, developed out of Toyota and out of just-in-time manufacturing and related processes and started to apply them. Everything continued to evolve from the 1980s through the 2000s, as we start to see advanced analytics and computing keep everything balanced on a nice edge. Things only arrive just in time. As technology speed and capability continue to increase, we see supply chain management, RFID technologies for chipping items um, and being able to trace them in the system and something called integrated point of sales data, real time update processes. What this means is every time you purchase something at a supermarket, the data point that you generate from that purchase feeds immediately back into the system to shape the next decision the system will make around supply, um, which is pretty neat. So what we also see then is retailers managing all sorts of complex networks. Tesco, for example, maintains the flow of goods and coordinates ships, trains, trucks and planes all across its global supply chain. Now of course their stock isn't all car parts and manufacturing it involves people and producers and the environment you can't just turn chickens on and off as you need them. So the environment and people start to complicate the technology as well. There's a whole bunch of other um, other systems that Tesco has also introduced as have most um, big retailers at the moment. And I don't have time to go into all of them today, but it's everything from staff management software to farm management to transportation logistics, stock level management, ordering, communications, banking and finance, um, staff management, all of these are, are managed in some way by computational systems. So for me, what that means is the future of food is already here. It's just not very obvious when you buy eggs. And things always tend to get complicated when we assume they are today as they always were. Uh, Today, many systems are being driven by advanced sensing, machine learning, AI, but they're not signposted, and you'd never even know they were there until they're disrupted. So the disruption that COVID has brought invites us to think a bit harder about what it is we're building and how these systems contribute to a safe or sustainable or responsible future. Um, So in the last couple of minutes, I want to ask the question, so what on earth do we do with that? Um, How on earth might we do things differently when it comes to these systems? Uh, One way into thinking about that um, is to go back to an anthropologist and much more, um, Gregory Bateson, who's here with Margaret Mead doing field work in the Pacific Islands. Um, Gregory Bateson worked with technology increasingly, especially after the Second World War. Um, and there's a whole different story to tell there, one of the things he continued to suggest was before starting to try and solve problems and especially use technical solutions to solve problems, we might wanna first think about changing ourselves. And I take that as a bit of a challenge to suggest how might we change our assumptions about what the food system is and how it works And how can we be informed by the COVID lockdown to challenge some of our own assumptions before we go into recommending what else we might wanna do with the system. So I wanna, in the last couple of minutes, give you four assumptions about the food system that certainly I had made in the past that lockdown shopping invites us to disrupt. The first assumption is that stores are for storage. Um, This kind of notion of stores as storage shapes the public imagination So when things suddenly aren't available, it becomes unexpected. Um, It becomes even worrisome when things aren't in stock. The reality is there's very little stock there to begin with. It's all floating out in the system somewhere else. Um, This kind of idea that stores aren't storage houses anymore also creates problems. And we saw in the meat supply chain, especially in the U.S., uh, when processors had to shut down their facilities, there was insufficient cold storage capacity anywhere in the system to put the stock that had kind of banked up in the system. So there was lots of waste as a result. And disrupting this assumption invites us to start thinking about goods in flow and in flux, about storage and accumulation. And again, I'm not convinced that these are themes that potentially computer scientists or programmers are best equipped to think about. The second assumption is that AI is all about the future and that that future is blue and shiny. Um, to keep a retail store fully stopped, most supply chain forecasting, so thinking about what's needed tomorrow, is based on using a series of time, uh, time series data and kind of averages of sales of each item. So what that means in practice is um, the sales for Tuesday next week will be roughly the same as last year with a little bit extra added on. And this doesn't work well at all when something disturbs the system. Um, so when we say egg usage is unexpected, well, one thing we mean there is to say that the trend of egg usage fell outside of the data set that the AI system had been trained upon. Uh, AI is great at pattern recognition, but it's really not very good with pattern disrupted. Um, This led to a whole series of suggestions about how we might start to change the system. Some stores suggested uh, during the first lockdown in 2020 that we start to train supply chain models on more data, for example, all of the data from previous disasters and and, uh, all the way through history, which raises an interesting and a a second set of questions and and concerns. Um, And some are now wondering whether last quarter's purchases, even the ones that you showed on the graph at the start, Stanley, count as a normal data set for next quarter, can they use them for prediction and forecasting into the next future to calibrate the models? Or do we need completely different data? In which case, where do we come from or how do we build the assumptions instead? Um, And it's important to bear in mind underneath all of this uh, and underneath AI systems in general, that all data are partial and all data are retrospective. So we must think really critically about how they're being used to drive and create the systems and the future possibilities in the world around us. And again, for me, there's a question there about what's the role of experts in history or contextualization in this space. The third assumption I find for myself COVID disrupting is the assumption that we build our values onto tech and not into it, that the tech part is somehow objective and scientific. Um, Just-in-time systems are currently based on a really clearly stated set of values, their efficiency, growth, speed, cost reduction. These values are built into the algorithms and metrics of the system, so they shape uh, the assumptions that are made throughout the system. But advances in technology underpinned by values like efficiency at all costs paradoxically make supply chains more vulnerable to disruption, which is what we've seen during COVID-19. So if we wanna see different outcomes in systems like this, then we need to find ways to talk about the inherent values that we're programming in. Um, And if we wanna see fundamental changes in the food system, it really starts here. And again, there's an interesting question about who is equipped in the ecosystem to have conversations about values and about the way they shape our practices. Finally, the first assumption, for me that comes out of looking at food systems during COVID-19 is that it's someone else's job to fix the tech part. There's an assumption that we need to train more people to understand the mechanics of the system, whether it's STEM practitioners or more people learning to code um, or more people studying computer science and engineering. But things like exchange, relationships, values, ecosystems, networks, history, These all demand much greater diversity and seeing ourselves, I think in the picture is important here as well. So I kind of wanted to end by suggesting that next time you buy an egg at the supermarket, take a moment to think about your own assumptions of how that arrives at you um, and how your expertise could help us potentially build a more safe and sustainable and responsible food system in future. With that, I wanna say thank you. Amy, thank you so much.